Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who have great personalities Mark, Matt, and Shannon. How's it going, everybody? It's Wood Talk number 193 for August 4th, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about mixing profiles and breadboard ends using a chisel plane and uh, also dados and grooves with hand tools. But before we get to that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. When you spend weeks crafting the perfect box or cabinet, why would you use anything but the highest quality hardware? Russo has been making high-precision hardware here in the United States for over 20 years. The entire line is available in brass and stainless steel at brusso.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the new line of knife hinge installation templates. As a special offer to Woodtalk listeners, use the code WOODTALK at checkout for 10% off. All right, thanks so much, Brusa. We appreciate that. Remember, 10% off using that code WOODTALK. And we should also thank a couple of generous donors, John C. and Moni R. Thank you so much for helping out. And if you want to help out too, you can go to woodtalkshow.com. Look in that left-hand column and you'll see a couple of links there that will send you to PayPal donation pages. You could just make a one-time donation or um, a repeat donation. It's kind of like a subscription that sends, uh, sends us money and you don't really get anything in return. Like we just keep doing the show, but uh, but a big what are you thank you. About? That is priceless. <laughs> well, usually, or, or it's a great form of interrogation. Yeah. I think maybe they're using that now in the CIA. They could, they could do that. Uh, yeah, we're just we give you a heartfelt thank you and a mention at the top of the show because uh, we certainly appreciate the individual support from the folks who listen to the show. So good stuff, and, and a big virtual kiss that too. Mm. And if we see you in person, it may not be so virtual. Yeah, you have to give me a second to put my red lipstick on, but uh, you are getting a big one. <laughs> hey, all right, let's move into what's on the bench. Uh, still not actually doing a whole lot of woodworking for me. I'm prepping for a live guild session tomorrow, and I'm going to show a couple different ways on how to make a four-sided quarter sawn leg, uh, well, to simulate quarter sawing on all four sides. So it's a couple different ways to do it, but um, I needed some quarter sawn white oak. I actually only had a four-quarter board, and I wanted to show this with like substantial thicker legs. So I went to... Uh, to Spellman in Phoenix. And the thing is, Nicole, long backstory, Nicole's out of town. She took my truck, the truck sitting at the airport. So I have our family vehicle, which is not quite the same and has not quite as easy to transport lumber in. So I know I don't like going and buying one board. I hate doing that. I don't like doing that to the people at the, the lumber place, but sometimes it has to happen. So uh, so I go there to get my one board because that's all I could fit in this car. And uh, <laughs> of course, of course, they, like, first of all, it's it's somewhere in the back, but then they can't even find the stack. They don't even know where it is. And if it is there, it's probably buried, not just under several stacks, several um, you know pallets worth, but it's like three or four deep in the pile. And I'm like, Oh my, I, d- I don't want to be that guy, that guy, you know, <laughs> yeah. but here's, here's the difference though. The whole time I was apologizing and I let them know that I knew I was being that guy. Ah, good. So, well, you know, still doesn't make any self-awareness. <laughs> yeah. Self-awareness is always fantastic, but it still doesn't make up for the fact that you are the guy. But look, here, here's where I turn it all, all around. Right. I'm looking around okay, and, and I'm, I've got stuff to do today. So I'm sitting here waiting for these guys to go through the pile and they're being cool about it. So, um, so they would have done it. But I'm like, you know what? I only need these. This is for a demo, right? So all I really need is a a couple of small legs out of this. Just give me some eight quarter 
regular, you know, plain sawn white oak, and I'll use the sides to to make my own quarter sawn legs. Uh, and and they're like, I don't understand. It's not, but it's not quarter sawn. So, <laughs> so I had I to start. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to kind of give them a quick lesson. I said, and they're pointing out boards, going, Yeah, here's the quarter sawn ones. I'm like, Guys, no, it's not. Like nothing's labeled. It was it was getting confusing. And then I showed them how to look at the grain and read the grain, and then I explained what I was going to do. I still don't think they cared or understood what I was talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I got my one board and thankfully it was near the front. It wasn't that difficult. So I didn't feel that bad about it, but yeah, that's, I'm always very conscious of, of being that, that guy who comes in asking for the one board that's all the way in the back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I got around it. I, I took the hit on that one, but uh, I did mill the stuff up today. Unfortunately, it was a nice wide board. I was able to get a couple of uh, uh, example pieces out of it that do look like it you know, you, you can't tell it didn't come from quarter on stock. I just gave it a 90, 90 degree turn. It looks fine. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's all good. Um, who we got next here, Shannon. That's me. Hello. So hey, I mentioned you in, uh, I'm doing a show. You want to oh. join me? Yeah, oh, sure. I'll be cool. there. Okay, cool. So anyway, I said this in the last show that I was uh, speaking at the Shenandoah Woodturners Guild and that's what I did. And it was really fun. It was, uh, you know, we, before we recorded, we were talking about the niches within subcultures. Well, there's another one. Wood turners and woodworkers and wood carvers and furniture makers, they're all kind of their own little subculture. And this was specifically a wood turners guild. And I went down to present the spring pole lathe. And these guys are just amazing. <laughs> wood turners in general who do nothing but, you know, just turn. And it's funny because there's even then there's a subdivision. There's the wood turners who make like functional things. And then the wood turners who just make artwork. Yeah. You know, they make a bowl with a big hole in it. You know, I mean, right. how, how functional is a bowl with a hole in it? But, you know, they're highlighting a, a bark inclusion or a piece of burl and they'll inlay <clears throat> some, you know, turquoise or something like that. And, uh, you know, basically that turquoise would come out after you wash the bowl a couple of times after using it. So obviously it's one of those things that goes in a display cabinet somewhere. But man, the skill that some of these guys have is just just amazing. And I, I walked away feeling you know kind of envious to be able to you know if you ever make that small project and you just focus on a tiny little piece of something, the level of detail that you can put into that tiny little area, and you can just kind of go nuts off of that. That's what these guys are doing. You know, they're essentially working with a, a small chunk of lumber and turning it into a bowl or turning it into some sort of something you know it's just artwork and uh the skill required to work with some of this crazy burl wood and everything so it was really nice to see actual wood turners working on my lathe for the first time <laughs> instead of me yeah. instead of a hack like me you know and to see like i'm talking about well here's here's something that's different from you know a foot power lathe compared to a, a powered lathe and takes a little bit of, of of practice to overcome it one of the guys comes up and yeah like 30 seconds he overcame it i'm like all right well so when you're a bad wood turner like me, it takes practice to overcome. So <laughs> it was cool. it was very eye-opening and just we've talked about it before and how you can kind of go down the rabbit hole and really focus on a specific area and get really good at that specific area. This is one of those. These guys do nothing but turn wood and boy are they good at it. So Shenandoah like Woodturners Guild, that's a that's a that's a a master place where masters congregate. It almost yes. sounds like they when they were having you in there for amateur night. That's kind of <laughs> what I felt like. I mean, I, I quickly realized because you, if you've ever been to one of these things, they always have like business meeting first and they talk about, you know, outreach and things they're doing. And, and the keynote happens like 30, 
45 minutes in after they've done show and tell and everything. Well, I'm, they're doing this show and tell and I'm looking at the stuff that these guys are literally turning out. And I'm like, yeah, kind of change my presentation on the fly here and talk less about wood turning technique and more about the history of the pole lathe and differences <laughs> of the pole lathe. Turns out it was, it was a good decision because they didn't, they weren't there to learn how to turn. They were there to look at, basically it's like going to the zoo. They were there to like look at something they've never seen before and make fun of it. You know, oh, <laughs> it's don't, really funny. Don't put if yourself you had down gone like through that. with the, the original plan and then somebody would have been like, I didn't know it was comedy night. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's funny. Cause you, you would think, um, just to judge by maybe your average woodworking association that you like the few that I've done, I actually went there with kind of the opposite problem. I went there thinking, okay, they have this base level of knowledge. I'm going to give them these tips and tricks that are at a little bit of a higher level. And then I got there and was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is, I can just kind of see them glazing over within the first few minutes. I need to back down a little bit. And I'm sure it depends on, on the particular group, but it's kind of good to know who you're talking to. Cause man, that, that could put you in a, in a real pickle as you're well, trying to figure out what to talk about. That's definitely the lesson learned because I had the exact same experience, Mark, of every time I've done this or been to one of these sessions before. So that's how I built my presentation. Right. Was around kind of wood turning one on one. And, you know, my my principle, and I even cover this in the hand tool school, is the pole lathe actually is really good for building technique because of the extremely low speed. Um, not only is it very unforgiving for poor technique, but it allows you to really see what's happening, the physics of the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And it's really great. I've taught a lot of people at the museum how to turn, you know, at 60 RPMs. It's really very beneficial. And that was my, that was the thrust of what I was going to talk about. And I quickly realized that wasn't going to fly. This is a very different group. And I, I credit like, we just don't have woodworking guilds here. They've they've never worked, or if we do, it's a bunch of retired guys that aren't interested in new members. So they meet at like times when working people can't meet, and um, <laughs> they meet at their, their motto is "change is not good." <laughs> exactly. This group, I mean, the outreach that they're doing, the the they have a an actual shop that I think the whole group like you pay dues, and the part of that is you've got access to the shop, and they do like. One weekend a month, they open the shop up and they bring people in and teach them to turn. They're constantly going to like woodworking shows, to state fairs and putting on demonstrations. So just the sheer volume of outreach. So it's this really kind of welcoming open arms type thing. And there was one lady there that she was presenting this little turned finial box. It was just gorgeous. I come to find out she only started wood turning like six months ago. And the guys in the group were like, you remember this girl? She didn't even know what a lathe was six months ago. And she's like, oh, well, that's because you guys taught me to do this and taught me to do this. And it was like, this is what a functioning woodworking guild is supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah. You know, with, with really active, it wasn't just the three guys that hold it together. This was like 30 guys who were really passionate, 30 guys and girls actually, who were really passionate about it. And uh, it was really exciting to see. I so far have not seen such a well-functioning guild before. No, it's great. But, yeah, it was, it was kind of cool to see that. And the amount of effort they put into things like outreach was, uh, was awesome. Cool. Good to see. It was a good experience. Shenandoah Woodturners Guild, good bunch of folks. Very nice. And it's pretty down there in the mountains. Never been. No, no, neither have I. How about you? Matt? It's because I said Shannon in it, and I'm like, I'm not going down there. <laughs> it must be bad. I don't go anywhere with Shannon in the name. Forget That's about right. it. That's right. I stay away from that kind of a thing. Well, you know, speaking of like uh, uh, 
interesting places and changing your mind on when you get there and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up totally nothing woodworking at all. Uh, ended up going to uh, BronyCon with my son this week, and everybody doesn't know that is bros that love My Little Pony. Um, if you're now going, what? What? Uh, feel free to email me, and I will fill you in on this. <laughs> so uh, that's the ext- the closest thing to woodworking that would have been there was there was actually one forum that was talking about creating carvings of uh, your favorite pony or, or other original characters from the show or other things. And I wanted to go to that, but then I got totally pulled in a different direction. And I'm kind of glad I did. So, um, yeah, that's that's about it. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, I, I have to say, if there's one audience out there who's likely to have a lot of bronies in it, it's probably the Wood Talk audience. I think so, too. You know, the Probably. funny thing is, I, I should mention that <laughs> I was posting a lot of stuff. So anybody that saw my Facebook posts or my, my uh, Twitter, you're probably thinking, what the heck is going on here? Well, yeah. the uh, bronies that are also on Twitter and Facebook, I was getting a lot of likes. I was getting a lot of requests to, you know, c- uh, connect and everything. And I'm thinking any minute now, they're going to start going, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> unfollow, unfollow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I give them a week to go through all the pictures and the videos and then there will be yeah, a massive flood of unfollow follows there you go cool <laughs> that's gonna be my new marketing plan i'm just gonna pick random cons and go to it and just there you talk go it up a whole bunch get all these followers and then you know indoctrinate them into the ways of wood later that's a good it idea sounded, sounded dirty a little bit a little <laughs> bit all right let's move on to what's new don't have a whole lot to share today but i uh, got a link here that where did i see this i think on facebook somebody posted this it's a video of a very old wood cutting machine that's just slicing up logs into uh, usable boards What's cool about it, I mean, it's very well well shot, good quality video, but uh, it takes them about, God, it must take them hours to get this machine ready as they start the fire at like two in the morning and then by seven, it's ready to go. Uh, the funny thing is even in the form of video, it's like it may be an eight minute video, seven minute video. The first five minutes are just getting this thing started and maybe the last two minutes show it cutting wood. Yeah. So, you know, if, if video is compressing real time, think about what that would actually be like in real time. Um, but very, very impressive machine. Very old school. It's one of those things where they're firing it up and then they got to they roll the belt down the hill and then, <laughs> right. you know, they, they hook the belt up to the pulley and then they connect the two belts wherever there's a, a seam. They have to make the connection and two guys are like using all their strength to wrap it up around the, the little spindle dealy thingy. And uh, it's just cool it's it's really cool to see how this is done but it's also one of those things that makes you really thankful for modern <laughs> motors <you Right>. <laughs> like oh my god the amount of work that goes into this so uh, well, i mean it, it's it, a wood it's a wood fired thing so that seems kind of weird well you know well, what they it is should start working with a baker you know you could get two things out of that you're sawing logs in the front and you're baking bread out of the back <laughs> That's, right. they really need to multitask that. you would think yeah well the funny thing is you'd imagine they're they're probably consuming three quarters of each log just to keep the machine going <laughs> so every log gets you it gets you one board and then the rest just gets burned <laughs> well, you know, Very efficient. one thing i was thinking is i was wondering now the, the whole thing i think it's in german and the, the other thing i was thinking was uh well actually the main thing i was thinking this reminds me of inside any of like say wood magazine or something like that there's that one machine that you can take out the blades and you can make moldings and all this other stuff and this reminds me of one of the saw setups that they have in there mm-hmm. where you're suddenly like making four things four or five things simultaneously yeah it's it's a pretty cool machine uh all right let's this is dutch by the way oh, it, dutch, it dutch, dutch german dutch. and the title of the video is ramzak Oh, well, in that case, I didn't, even, I didn't even bother trying to pronounce it. I kind of just left that out subtly. Did you say Rumspringer? Aha! 
Anyway, all right, let's go to the poll of the week. And uh, we didn't have one last week, so we can't give you any results. But we have a new one that you can participate in, and I'll put the link in the show notes for that. Tom wants to know, how do you cut mortises? Obviously a very fundamental thing for woodworkers, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. So uh, head over to the poll. Let us know what you think, the method you use. We want to know, and we'll give you the results on next week's show. And let's move into kickback, Matt. Uh, Put your name there because I don't feel like talking anymore. All right, no problem. Wait, this kickback came in from Ryan Foster of Boston, Boston, Massachusetts. Boston. Boston. He says, I tuned into your latest Wood Talk episode and wanted to pass along some information for Lucas in Massachusetts. So, Lucas, just a quick reminder for everybody, he was our soon to be college going away ish woodworker. And he was asking about a workbench, creating a workbench when he comes back, if he would have enough time, say, over his one month uh, vacation at, around Christmas time. So anyways, Ryan goes on to say there's a place in Cambridge slash Somerville, Massachusetts called the Artisans Asylum. It's an all-encompassing artist workplace in a massive warehouse, and they have a fully equipped wood shop. Now, they offer monthly memberships with no long-term commitment. Lucas could sign up for one month while at home and have access to a fully equipped wood shop. They even offer storage options for an additional fee. And there's even a saw stop cabinet saw, though their website calls it a grizzly. Apparently, they haven't updated the website in a while, (laughs) according to Ryan. And most of their tools are frequently calibrated and maintained by employees of the local Rockler shop. So if there is a way to pass this information on to Lucas, uh, this might be able to help you out. So, Lucas, hopefully you are listening and uh, perhaps Ryan has just given you a really great idea. And, of course, we'll have a link, I do believe, in the show notes for mm-hmm. the website, which is artisanasylum.com. Cool. And I'm looking at the prices now. This is just interesting because I never really priced one of these things out. They've got a weekend warrior membership that costs about 60 bucks a month. And you basically just get from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. on the weekends, nothing during the weekdays. So for Lucas's situation, he's home from college. He's got weekday time. The weekday membership is $100 a month. Now, you don't get weekends with that, but you get nine to seven Monday through Friday. Uh, and then there's an unlimited basic un- un- unlimited membership that's $150 and your unlimited weekdays, weeknights, and uh, that's for one month. So 150 bucks for the month that he's home may not really be that bad. If you think about all that work that's involved in building that workbench, this might be a really uh, realistic option for him. Heck yeah. yeah. Just for only for only one reason, that the machines are calibrated and maintained by someone else. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> you yeah. hope so. I wish I could bring <laughs> somebody in to do that in my shop. That would be really awesome. Can imagine some of the things I'd be able to get done, like projects. Yeah, right. There's a, uh, if you go to the webpage, there's a scrolling series of images, and there's one where this uh, girl, looks like this, well, I'm assuming it's a girl. She's got really nice, cool-looking dreadlocks, but she's welding. <laughs> and you see like sparks that are just a couple of inches from her dreadlocks. <laughs> nice. I'm just like, whoa, that might not be so good. And, and knowing how dreadlocks are made, uh, yes, that would definitely not be good. <laughs> just the other side of that is the big scrap wood pile and the, you know, yeah. like, but this sawdust. Uh, they should have it near the finishing tank. That would be even better. But look at this place. You guys see some of these pictures? It looks insane. This is one of those like one of these new uh, sort of cutting edge maker spaces that are, are popping up all over the place. Um, I, I think this is awesome. This is, this is the future of craftsmanship. That's for sure. This is really, really cool. Wow. We need one here. Hmm. Maybe I should talk to them about. Yeah. You could scrap your shop, dude. Just get a membership. You don't have to maintain anything. You, you know, you don't, well, you start using your basement again and let your, yeah, cat- exactly. Like, what am I going to do with all this space? <laughs> the space in my basement. I know I'm going to go into knitting. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, where's my show notes? Lost my space. Okay, here we go. We have a voicemail here from Bob and he's got a question about outdoor finishes. And uh, I think he's got a comment at the beginning as well. 
Hey, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. This is Bob DeVries from Holland, Michigan. Greetings and many thanks for the work you do. Mark, I just want to say thanks for the advice on using the HVLP sprayer. Uh, I ordered the Jeff Jewett book that you had suggested and took your advice, and I hiked up my skirt and I went at it. I got to tell you, it was awesome. I got so excited. I thought I'd take one of those little blue pills. Glad I had my skirt on. (laughs) Now I've got another question. I have an outdoor project coming up, and I've used Epiphane in the past. Epiphane, I don't have enough of it, and it's not cheap, but I am. So I was wondering, can I use my Epiphane until it runs out and then use another, like a water-based exterior poly on the project? Will the layers bind together, or am I just asking for trouble? As always, I really appreciate the advice. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, thanks for that voicemail, Bob. Uh, I do think you're asking for trouble. You got to be careful, especially with outdoor finishes. That's really a torture test for a finish. And there are times where I think it's okay to kind of combine and, and alternate between an oil and a water-based if you do things properly, let it cure uh, each layer cure fully. It's, so I'm not going to say it's not possible. But here's the thing. You bought Epiphanes in the past. Epiphanes, for folks who don't know, it's a really high-grade uh, marine varnish that's just w- one of the best varnishes out there that I've ever used. Um, really nice, flexible finish with UV inhibitors. It's, it's uh, top quality. So if you've already purchased that, you kind of know what you're getting into in terms of like why you purchased that in the first place. Uh, I think it's a bad idea to then go and switch to something else. And you know, these days water-based finishes for outdoor use are not quite up to the quality of what you're getting with an oil-based finish. So I, I do have a problem with switching from oil to water. I'd even have a problem if you went with a base of Epiphanes and wanted to back it up with some Helmsman. Uh, and put that on top because really your finish is only going to be as good as your top coat, your last coat of finish. And if that fails, you know, then all bets are off for everything else. So I would say stop being cheap, hike up your skirt, pull out your purse, <laughs> go buy some Epiphanes. I think you're going to be much happier with the results. And, and you know, you sound like a smart guy. You don't want to do extra work a year or two from now when a, when a finish fails. You know, so put just put a couple extra bucks into it. Go back, get some more Epiphanes, and you won't regret it. You'll and if you have more left over, you'll use that on the next project. I, I think you'll be much happier in the long run with that. You know, I'm just going to put this out there. Uh, Bob lives literally south of me, and uh, that particular neck of the woods in Michigan is known for their cheapness. So, um, <laughs> you know, Bob, definitely take the time and overcome the urge to be yeah. as cheap as possible. Uh, I know you're going to make a difference. And actually. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to give him different advice so that when it goes bad, I'll hear the yelling all the way up here. I'll be like, is that Bob? <laughs> He's going to say, wood talk. <laughs> all right, let's move into our email. It's going to be kind of a quick show today. It's okay, though. I got to go pick up my kid. There we go. All right, next one we've got here from David. He says, um, oh, wait, is that mine? Yeah, it is. Yep, that's you. He says, that's I'm making you. a, thanks, guys, uh, making a <laughs> shaker-inspired dining table for our home and plan to use breadboard ends on the top. I've not done breadboard ends before, but it looks pretty straightforward to me. My question is this. Other shaker-style tops that I've made have beveled edges, a shallow bevel on the underside of the four edges to lighten up the appearance of the top. I really like this look. However, I am assuming that this is not really compatible with breadboard ends. What do you think? Do you have any experience with breadboard ends on a table with shaped edges? I just thought this was an interesting question because I wanted to even hear from you guys as well. Like, obviously, there's a lot of things in the woodworking world that may not be done, but there's no reason why you can't do it or you can't at least try it. Who cares if conventional wisdom says not to uh, unless it's a safety issue or like a guaranteed failure issue? 
In this case, I do think you you are running into a bit of a wall, and that's because the breadboard end performs a function. That function is to allow the rest of the top to expand and contract. And as a result, a breadboard end will almost always have either the table, the center section of the table, sitting proud of the breadboard ends, or the breadboard end sitting proud of the table. As it moves, it'll always be in flux. So depending on your season and how you built it, you may wind up having that little ridge there. So if you create a bevel on the underside, they become mismatched at some point and that may look and feel weird, you know? So that would be like, I don't know that there's necessarily anything wrong visually with it, but once things move around on you, there may be. So would you guys even, would you even consider doing something like that? Or you think the movement issue is just a deal breaker? I myself would have no issue doing it because I I like in a lot of my pieces to have anything that makes it unique and stand out just a little bit. I know sometimes my clients, specifically my wife, isn't too thrilled with it, but I like something that is unique and would not only draw my eyes to it, but if I were to actually touch it and have that tactile experience with it, mm-hmm. uh, it just that would work for me. So I, I myself would have no problem at all doing something like that, like putting the, uh, the chamfer on there, even on the breadboard ends. Hmm. Shannon, what about you? I agree. I, and I think the the difference, that difference as it moves throughout the year will be probably not noticed by anybody but you, the woodworker, first of all. <laughs> right. Um, again, even or your mother-in-law. You know, even, right. Well, even if it wasn't on the underside of the table, even if it was somewhere more noticeable, I don't think it would be that big of a deal. Because again, it's not like it's going to be an inch, you know, deviation. It's going right, to be a right. small amount of deviation. And if you plan your stock right, it may be even less than that. Um, and also with climate control and all that fun stuff. So that wouldn't even really enter into it. Um, when I first saw this question, it's funny because I almost added this to the show notes myself. I don't know why I didn't. But um, it is, I started thinking, well, how will that that shape, whatever it is, the, the bevel on the underside, how will that interfere with the, the joinery? And I started thinking, well, you know, I could shorten the tenons or I could knock kind of bump the tenons up in the breadboard a little bit so that there, mm-hmm. there's more meat on the underside. And that's the way I was thinking. I never even thought that the, uh, the you're right, the, the movement would become, that bevel would become a little uneven. But I, I don't think it would be that big of a deal. I think it, uh, would, it would bug me. I don't know. Really? It might just be a personality flaw. But you like green and yes. green, and green and green's all about reveal. And, <laughs> it's all about an it's all about, offset here. And, but it's about intentional reveal. Well, then accidental, you say it was intentional. An accidental Six reveal. Six months out of the year, it was intentional. Well, on the, the little jewelry box that uh, Gary Rogowski made in my shop recently, we just had a video up on it. Uh, we basically had breadboard ends that were just about a sixteenth of an inch proud, just a little bit, so that if that movement occurs, it looks purposeful. It doesn't look like it, you know, it's. It, it it was straight and and uh, flush, and now it's not. Uh, and I think that's the difference. I think if you make it just that little bit flush, and you make it, or you, I'm sorry, if you make it a little bit proud, then it's purposeful. Then it makes sense, and then it works. I'm just assuming he's going with a nice, you know, one that starts off in the shop as nice and flush, and then maybe a couple months later he has this unintentional reveal that would drive me nuts. Weird. I don't know. Like anytime I sit at a table that's got uh, a really nice profile on it, and I've my desk like this is. Uh, uh, what is it? The trestle table that I made that we have our gaming computers on. Um, I can't not touch that. Like when I'm sitting there, I just rub my hand on it. Um, maybe that's a little weird, but that's no. what I would do to this table. And it would drive me nuts if I felt that little unevenness there. But you well, see, you I think just that, wear that, it down. It would become even <laughs> you know, enough, enough rubbing. 
<laughs> you know, but I, at the same time, though, that that to me, again, there's there is something to be said about the tactile experience. And I think that's one thing that I do. I, I'm the opposite. I, I like that unique little uh, bump out or something or that that unusual facet or something. Because I know yeah. even like somebody uh, like like a Brian Boggs, I mean, he talks quite a bit about part of the reason why his chairs are so unique is the fact that they have these individual little facets and, and bevels and everything else. These I think other people consider them to be imperfections. You might consider them to be imperfections, mm-hmm. but it makes it unique. And it's almost like something like as you're sitting there, you know, you're feeling these things, and it's it's reminding you of of the actual material itself. And sure, I think that's sure. one thing that I like about it is, again, it's not like press board where it's something like dead flat all the way across. Right, right. right. I don't know. That's yeah. just me. Could just be I a like cool the design balls. opportunity. You know. Well, that's the thing. I'm thinking. All right, what if he does bump it out intentionally, like a green and green breadboard end, and it's uh, he's got a little bit of material proud there. Well, then now the bevels are offset. How how do you like once you get around that edge? How do you resolve your long bevel of the table with the bevel that's on the end of the uh, the breadboard end? A carved detail, like a lamb's tongue. There you something. go. Yeah, just something it, to tie it's it in. It's funny because you, you said Gary Rogowski, and that kind of popped into my mind. Gary, one of the things that one of my first exposure to him was his little sushi box that he made in fine woodworking like ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've made God knows how many of those things to sell at craft shows and things like that. Thanks for the design, Gary. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, but one of the coolest things that people commented on on the ingrain on the end of the top of this little box is just a little carved detail. And all it is is just a like a number nine sweet gouge just kind of dimpled the side so there's a little bit of texture. Yeah. Um, and it is like people love it. Their, their fingers are drawn to it. They love how it catches the light. And all it is is just ingrain that's basically just dinged up <laughs> with the carving <laughs> gouge. So you could you could do something like that. Where that offset is, you could create a round over with a chisel that is specifically faceted, or you know you could create another bevel there or something like that. I don't know. There there could be any number of opportunities. You could inlay something so that it's a different color and it pops or something. I don't know. Sure, kind of cool. Cool. Have fun with it. Have some fun with your woodworking. Stop stressing yeah. so much like oh, I do. That drives me nuts <laughs> having fun with woodworking. Stupid fun. Oh. All right, Shannon, you're up. All right, this comes to us from Justin. He says he bought a Lee Nielsen 97 and a half chisel plane. I don't know about you guys, but I never remember the model numbers of these things. I get yeah, emails all like the time plain. saying, yeah, I don't think he actually put chisel plane in this at first. I think he just put, I bought a Lee Nielsen 97 and a half, and I had to look it up. <laughs> I don't remember. I'm still just trying to spell Lee Nielsen properly. So yeah, what, one or through eight. Those are the ones I know, one through eight. Anything above that, it's it's a rabbit plane or a shoulder plane. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, he bought a chisel plane a while back with the intention of using it to flush up face frames to the shop, the top of shelves on the inside corners of cabinets. After planing the middle of the face frame flush with a regular bench plane, you can then come back and uh, use the chisel plane to get in that corner and flush it up. But whenever he uses it, it seems to just dig in and gouge out the wood, no matter how shallow the cut. I can't figure out a way to make it useful and to justify the cost. Well, I'm not going to address the point of justifying the cost because I don't have one of these and I haven't been able to justify the reason (laughs) to buy one. Here's the thing. It is called a chisel plane, and that's the first problem. It's kind of a misnomer. It is more like a paring chisel and not a plane. This is not the type of tool that's really meant to, you know, put your hand on the back and, and make a long pass with it. 
This is more of, of a, a two-handed kind of slicing type tool. And the sole of the plane, I'm doing air quotes there, the sole of that, that plane is really meant as just a good reference surface. So instead of you grab it and, and kind of pushing it into the corner, what you do is you kind of, you, well, if you're right-handed, you use your right hand. Me, I'd use my left hand behind it. My right hand would kind of push it laterally so that it makes a slicing motion as you work into the corner very short strokes not you know long plane type strokes imagine doing the same thing with the chisel you would kind of hold the flat of the chisel down on your reference surface and then slice it in kind of pivot it into the wood and slice it in and that's what you're trying to do with the chisel plane if you just push it forward like a normal plane invariably it is going to dig in because there is no front there is no sole in front of that blade so there's nothing preventing it from tipping forward it's got no sole yo exactly thing. moreover <laughs> we are now using it this is a plane that's used bevel up so that that blade the sharp the sharp pointy part of the blade is already angled down into the wood and you know if you think about taking a chisel if you take a chisel and put it bevel up like how we mostly use chisels, drive it in the wood, it's just going to dig in. If you wanted to skim over the surface of the wood with the chisel, you would put it bevel down and ride on that bevel. Well, the chisel plane is doing exactly the opposite. So by its very nature, the physics of how that blade cuts, it wants to dive into the wood. The sole behind it can help a little bit, but with nothing in front to balance it, it it's kind of tippy. So it's more of a two-handed slicing action and less of a planing action. So don't call it a chisel plane. Call it a fancy schmancy chisel. It's like a paring chisel holder. There you go, a paring chisel holder. <laughs> nice. So as far as justifying the cost, you could buy one of these or you could just buy a paring chisel. There a, you pairing, go. a PCH, a paring chisel holder. Yeah, this is definitely, especially someone who really, like if I'm going to start collecting planes, they're typically going to be specialty planes that that fulfill some sort of need, some little niche that I want. And this is one that's just never even made it on the list uh, yeah. for, for that reason, because I typically will use a chisel for this task and it doesn't um, hold a whole lot of, of appeal for the stuff that I do personally. Yeah, I, I made one like years ago and it was one of the videos that's in my archive someplace. And I have to tell you, after I made it, I used it once and I don't think I've ever used it since. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> good job, Matt. Planes. <laughs> All right. So, Matt, you, you uh, wrote yourself an email here? Apparently, Yes, I did. I decided from this point forward, I will only answer emails that uh, it is, comes from a mat, preferably me. <laughs> there you go. So, okay. So anyway, so uh, this mat says, his question is, what is the preferred method for cutting dados and grooves in solid wood with hand tools? Now, Shannon, I know you've got a really great answer for this, but I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to share you, with you mine. And in fact, I'm going to leave a link in here for uh, at the... Woodworking in America 1.0, because yes, I was one of those that had a chance to attend it. There was a really great class that was taught by, in fact, it was a hands-on lecture class, hands-on lab class with Adam Carabini and Roy Underhill, where they had people go through creating a, this in this situation, I think it was a groove with just uh, chisels and uh, I believe a handsaw. Uh, really neat class, really fun opportunity. But anyways, what I would do typically when it comes to the hand tool method is for grooves, number one, I'm going to my plow plane because it just works unbelievably well. And if hand tool method is the way that you really want to go, then I advise that you definitely get a plow plane eventually uh, because it does that job really well. Depending on how far in you want the groove, you may need to get um, either 
some sort of fence to register it up against. Or if you have one of the newer versions like the Veritas, which happens to be the one I have, you can uh, get extended rods that allow you to go deeper in the face of the board to give you those parallel uh, grooves. Now, one problem, some people will be saying, well, just use the plow plane then for doing dados. Sounds really good in theory until you actually attempt to do it and you discover that it is a horrible idea unless you take some preparations ahead of time. When it comes to doing the dados, what I typically do, and again, this is what I saw in this, in this video, so this is the method that I'm most familiar with. What I often will do is I will lay out where the shoulders of the dados are going to be. I will then go through and strike it with a knife, and then I will set up a, for the lack of a better description, a sacrificial fence or a fence right on that line, not to the side, not you know off a little bit. I want it right on that line, and then I'm going to come in with a crosscut saw and register that saw, press it firmly against that block, that sacrificial fence. So before I go any further, I should re- tell you that you should have that sacrificial fence clamped down really, really snug and tight on the board because then you're going to press the saw up against that that block and you'll start cutting into that shoulder line. And you're going to want to double check to make sure that you don't go deeper than you intend that dado to be. So you might want to stop once in a while or maybe even mark it on the blade itself. It's not going to hurt it if you put a Sharpie marker on the uh, the depth that you want to go to. Once I have that first shoulder indicated, I'll then repeat it on the other side, cut that. Now I have both of my shoulders completely in the range of depth that I want. Now I want to remove that material in between the two shoulders. You can do this one with a chisel. Ideally, maybe a gouge is probably the best way to go because you can get in there and remove a decent amount of the material. You might want to start, the, normally you'll think, oh, I'm going to start right where I am and then work my way across the board. The best way is probably to start on the backside of the board, the furthest away from you, and work your way towards you. You're less likely to have major blowout and, and tearing, so you can go that route. If you don't have a gouge, you could potentially use just a regular bench chisel, but in my, my advice and from watching the video and the little bit of experience I have with this, uh, you're going to want to invert that blade. Again, you'll have more control, so you're not going to go deep down into it and have huge, giant chunks coming out. What I normally would recommend is that you would not go the full depth when using the chisel. In fact, you'll go uh, – uh, I usually would try to stop probably about a sixteenth of an inch from my final depth, and then that's what I'm going to come in, preferably with my router plane to clean it out and take it to that final depth. I Before I had my router plane, I would use my uh, shoulder plane uh, since most of the time I was making three-quarter inch wide dados. Uh, and I was able to, able to get really good results with that, but it takes a little bit longer. The router plane, I felt like I can get through it faster. Uh, another alternate option is to simply use uh, the router plane, but again, I would want to define those shoulders first with the saw or something to help really make sure that I'm not going all over the place. It kind of gives you the track that you want to run down. Uh, so that is one thing to do. If you were to use just the router plane, that's when you want to get that like spear-pointed blade versus using the flat one especially when you're roughing out that material because that flat one, while it will get the, the job done, it's not ideal when you're trying to remove a lot of material. So that is the number one way I would, or the ways that I would do it for sure. Plow plane for grooves, that technique I just attempted to describe for dados. Some might be saying, you know, hey, we'll just get a dado uh, uh, plane and do that. 
I have no experience with those. They look really neat, but again, you probably need to set up some sort of guide so that you're getting nice, straight uh, shoulders for that. So uh, that's that's the techniques that I have. Hey, Matt. Yes. That was the Ready cl- to repeat the whole thing? That was the closest I've ever come to falling asleep on the show. <laughs> Sweet! <laughs> well, in that case, uh, if you have uh, any of you, any uh, insomnia issues, let's go ahead and mark this episode oh, as the episode. In case I have a problem sleeping tonight, I will excerpt that clip, put it on my phone, and I will play that. And I will awesome. be out like a light. <laughs> that was no. Was it. While you were talking, I was watching the video, and it's a good video. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it's one of those things that you need the visual to uh, to keep the energy going. Uh, you know well, what's, that's what's what funny. happens. I, I I go away to BronyCon <laughs> and I come back and I'm like, what is the one that I'm so hyped up from that with all the energy and stuff that I'm like, hmm, I need some help getting to sleep and Tylenol <laughs> PM's not working. I know. Nice. I'll talk about cutting dados and grooves with hand tools. There you go. Perfect. It, it's funny because dados, grooves, and rabbits are kind of like so unglamorous but they're used so much yeah think about the number of times you have to cut these for your average joint and there are just as many ways to cut them using hand tools so everything you said yes matt and then like (laughs) there's 30 other techniques too so my my recommendation is if you are going to go hand tools only get a handheld router (laughs) (laughs) the best way it is by hand technically Yes, yes, it is. So I, that's, that was the, the other preferred method that I have. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Sounds I good. I think preferred method's tough to answer because, again, there's just so many. And there's yep. ways, there are times when I do one and there's times when I do another. And it you know, could be because the grain is being difficult. It could be because it's in a weird spot. It could be because I'm too lazy to walk across the shop and get my router plane. <laughs> that's just, just grab a saw, me. you know. So, yeah, there's a bunch of ways. So there is no preferred. Try them all. Try them all. Decide for yourself. They're all delicious. All right. Well, uh, so just a couple of ways that you can support us if you want to. Oh, by the way, last show, I don't know if I just, uh, maybe I was tired from that show too, but I think I fell asleep at the wheel while, while editing and I had the music volume really loud. Oh, yeah. During the whole end of the show, somebody brought that to my attention. I was like, whoopsie, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll try not to do that this time. Uh, So if you want to support us, you can do so at woodtalkshow.com and use some of those links in the left hand column. Set up a recurring donation in a small amount or a one time donation. We appreciate that kind of support. Also, go to twwstore.com and get yourself a Wood Talk t shirt. And actually, we're we're low on sizes. We need to restock because we had that sale recently and uh, the Wood Talk shirts went like hotcakes sweet yeah that means so many good looking people are out there walking around right now so true so true all right and if you want to you can go to the itunes store and leave us a review there just click on ratings and reviews and click that five star rating which we always appreciate like ir wood did and uh matt how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here All right, folks. Well, if you're still awake from that last email that I attempted to do, you have comments, questions, or topic suggestions, several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is WoodTalkOnline. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at WoodTalkOnline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our WoodTalk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at WoodTalkShow.com. So good. So awesome. Um, do we have a regular show next week or are we doing a one topic show? Mm, I don't know. That, that's a long way away from right now. I don't There'll know be either. a show. There will yes. be a show one way or another. And if it's a one topic show, my apologies. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or it could be a recipe for who knows what. That's true. I do. Yeah, we do the recipe thing once in a while. Cool. All right, guys. Well, have a good one. Everybody listening. Thank you for your patronage of our show. And we will catch you next time. Bye. Brony out. 
Tapes and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. <laughs>